Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. 
Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Rambling Rose is over. Don't go off in the fourth dimension, all right? Evidently, she has been quite promiscuous since early childhood. I hope and believe that you found a safe haven in this house, honey. This is it, Andy. This is the last one. Yes, the final film in our um, perhaps mistitled John Hurd series. <laughs> it is. It is. John Hurd is in this movie. He is present. <laughs> he is I, present. I'd argue in context of uh, actors who uh, perform in the framing device of a film, perhaps Tom Hanks in Radio Flyer, who I think was uncredited, had more screen time and voiceover <laughs> than John Hurd had in this film. Um, you know, uh, but we wanted to pick films that, uh, John Hurt had been in. He had been in five films, uh, directed by women. And this is the fifth of his five. This is the one directed by Martha Coolidge. And, um, yeah, so here we are, uh, wrapping up our John Hurt series with Rambling Rose. What do you think I thought of this movie? Uh, I don't know if I want to play this game with this movie. <laughs> Oh dear, Andy. Why not? And let me just say, I did go to try to find your review on Letterboxd, and you didn't put anything in there for this movie. So, well, and I'll tell you because already, uh, you know, Ben in our uh, Discord community, it was just like, oh wow, he wouldn't even put anything in it. That's that's what he thought of this one. <laughs> Honestly, I had so much grading to do. I was just like, I just need to get back to my grading. I just dropped it in there, and I said, I'll come back to it later. Hmm. Fascinating. So you're telling me there's a reason you didn't put anything in there, and that reason is not explicitly how you felt about the film. That's what Correct. you're telling me. It was That's that what I, you're going to stand I had by that. So many other things to focus on. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to do with that information. I don't think you. I don't think you loved this movie. I don't think you loved it. Um, but I do think that you agree with Ebert, Siskel and Ebert, who say this is, this is characterized this as, as a great ensemble film. Uh, and that the performances you probably felt were, were strong. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Are you a, are you a three star on this movie? Higher? Mm. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna come out and say that you loved this movie. Wow. Right. That's, hey, you know, that's a strong not? commitment. Hey, if I have to guess, I'm just going to go high. Okay. That's weird because most of my reviews are three stars these days. I <laughs> uh, know. Well, right. if there's one thing I know now, don't do not do anything with a half star. Don't no, guess half I stars be... for old Pete. Nope. No more half stars. That's, that's, that's what we're doing. No half stars for Pete. Because what if you run out of stars? I'm going to start going on 27 stars for each thing. That's my new thing. Or no, maybe my age. No, you may not like the game, Andy, but don't disrespect it. That's what I'm. That's all I'm saying. You may not like it. Don't disrespect it. Okay, how's it rated? This film, uh, you could imagine, was rated R. Hey, want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in the show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to their site and you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little bit in return. You get to watch the movie. Everybody's happy. What are we possibly going to do for this movie? 
in the merch store, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. What is it a comb? Maybe it's just a comb. Hmm. I don't know, man. But what you I know that you will be able to get whatever it is on shirts, stickers, mugs, masks, pillows, and more with anything that we're coming up with. And that'll be truestory.fm slash TNR merch. It it supports us, it throws us a little sniff. You get something new to wear. Um it's it's good stuff. Get some merch. Um, we'd love to feature some audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. Just send us an audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie. You just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. Got to get them in quick. We do record about two weeks in advance, so uh, make sure you're sending them in. Again, it's to reviews at truestory.fm. And if you're wondering where you can see the movies that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks and for the rest of the season, you can find our entire series rundown on our Letterboxd HQ page. While you're there, you can sign up for a pro or patron membership. It'll remove ads and it will show your support for a fantastic team making the best uh, social media network or social network for movie lovers at Letterboxd. That's Letterboxd with no E at the end. Uh, and you can get that discount code is just Nextreel when you um, sign, uh, upgrade your account. Or you can just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxed and you'll get that 20% off your upgrade that works for renewals as well. And you can also uh, find all the movies that we're talking about on our calendar, which is somewhere on our website. TNR Live. TrueStory.fm slash TNR Live. You can get a calendar. You can see the calendar of everything we're talking about, and you can actually add the calendar to your calendar. So you can make sure that you're scheduling all of your upcoming appointments around our show. It's, it's that, <laughs> it's that important. <laughs> it's that important. Yes. Yes, it is. Hey, you know what you should do also? If you are really interested in the stuff that we do, you can support this show by becoming a member uh, of the show itself. And um, you members get early access to every episode. They also get a lot of bonus episodes. So many bonus episodes. Uh, we've got the flick chart re-ranking. We get a bonus episode for every series that we do each month uh, to fill in a hole uh, from past series that that we're doing. Movies that have. What, what been are we doing in March? We get very excited. I, I don't know. Uh, it's wild the, at heart. Wild at heart. Yeah, wild at heart. Laura Dern. <laughs> Another Diane. Uh, Diane Diane Yeah. Another mother daughter movie <laughs> what are they doing they make weird choices <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say about that uh so yeah head over to uh the next com uh slash membership and you can slash tnr membership tnr membership do that we we've got our our link game is on lock is what uh, is i believe is what they say is that what they say <laughs> true story.fm slash tnr membership Learn more about our membership tiers. Most it'll cost you is $5 a month or $55 a year. There's a couple of things that we know, like we're both seasoned podcasters. And we're both geeks. Hey, we're both dads of amazing daughters. We're both Gen X. But there is some things we don't know. Like what? Well, like what each episode of our new show is going to be about. How can we not know that? We're making the show. Yeah, but here's the thing. You're going to bring five things to talk about, and so am I. But we won't know what the other host is bringing. So it could be anything. Uh, a new story about a Marvel show. Uh, a cool toy that's coming out. A uh, play we just saw even a uh, weird thing from a drawer and it'll be a surprise for us 
and for our audience. And what are we calling this show? Oh, that's the part we do know. It's called 10 Random Things. You know, throwing in this random element, the show could go off the rails really fast. Oh, oh yes, I, I hope it does. And we're also going to do it live. Wait, what? Yeah, that's right. 10 Random Things will be streamed live on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Arizona time. All right, Andy, it's Rambling Rose time. What was your experience uh, watching this movie? Before have- we talk about the movie, I have mm-hmm. a question for you. Oh, sure. Rambling Rose, Pete. Mm-hmm. Did you um, know about the other Rambling Roses in the world before this movie? There's a rose called the Rambling Rose. There's uh, several songs called Rambling Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the book that this is based on. Um, I didn't know any of those things. I feel like I must have heard the Nat King Cole song because I've heard so much Nat King Cole. But it's like I don't think I ever had any context for this as a thing. I just thought it was from this movie. And then I'm like, oh, they, they named it after this flower that's a rambling rose. I had no idea that there was an actual flower that uh, they call a rambling rose, which I guess is... Mm-hmm. One that just kind of, I, I guess they call it rambling rose because it, um, I don't know what you call it, but it like grows, it's, well, here you go. It's scrambling shrub. Yes. So it kind of they, gets itself they to are, grow everywhere. You know where, you know where I live, right? Portland. Do you, do you have rambling is, roses at, in your yard? It is called the Rose City. Well, I've Did seen you know the that? giant rose garden, but I, do they yeah. have rambling roses there? <laughs> Who the hell knows, Andy? Really, honestly, there's so many roses. Who counts? <laughs> there there Who counts are a anywhere? lot of roses there's there. Freaking roses everywhere. But what I know of the rambling rose, I think, because there are there are there are two. De- <laughs> God, they get so sick of roses. God, they're everywhere, and they they all they never leave. Like you can cut them down, they will come right back. Uh, and so there are climbing roses, which they like they climb, and they will climb up the sides of buildings and stuff and they are uh, uh they they have like big rose rosy blooms right they look like blooms but the rambling roses are they're straight up weeds they just grow on the ground they grow everywhere and they have little tiny flowers that all just kind of explode that's that uh, like out of them in season and so that is that oh. is the extent of my now all i can tell you is for sure that i know climbing roses and rambling roses are not the same. That is okay. that is the the brief sidebar on rose uh, roses. That's why. Are I you know. familiar with the songs? Like I can't even picture no, the, the I Nat King Cole I, song. I couldn't sing it. I couldn't. I can't picture it. You just said Nat King Cole. Never would have been able to tell you that he sang a song called Rambling Rose. Yeah, uh, right? nothing. I know nothing about that. Yeah, it's like I nothing. had to have heard it, but it's one of those things. It's just like I somehow I blanked it from memory because this movie, when it came out, I'm like, huh, that's an interesting name for a movie because I like I. It's a title that has always stuck with me. Like this is a movie I never watched until yesterday, um, but I've always remembered the name of the movie because the name is catchy, and you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of movie titles, which are so completely um, bland, like you'll never be able to get anything from it or remember it even exists. But Rambling yeah. Rose, like I've always remembered this title and I just always, I don't know, I guess I maybe I'm finding it funnier than it really is. But I was just like, oh, I had no idea there were all these other Rambling Roses before this one. 
Yes. No, I agree. And maybe it's a sign of how we felt about the movie that we're so much more interested in talking about actual rambling roses and Nat King Cole songs than the movie itself. Is that possible? Mm, I don't know. I don't think Mm, so. It is for me. (laughs) Interesting. So you didn't like it, huh? I did not care for it. But let me tell you this. This is one of those movies that I recognize why people like this movie and and people like this movie, right? This is not this is this this was a movie of some regard and it's a mm-hmm. 6.6 on the IMDb scale. So it is over the 6 star uh film uh rating. It is not for me. I found it tiresome and I struggle with the, um, I, I didn't realize I was going to struggle so much with it, uh, but the whole, um, a Southern boy going home to see my pappy. And now for the next two hours, you're going to see a flashback where I talk to you about my crush on the babysitter and my coming of age. That whole framing thing, it's, it's like stealing home and Prince of Tides and fried green tomatoes, like all of that framing element I find uh tiresome i did not i didn't like like it (laughs) i didn't like it and of all things the thing that frustrated me the most was actually duvall because everything he says to to him is funny like he that's how he says the most important things his performance is all uh i'm robert duvall and uh like that he kind of laughs I just, I was like, is this too much? It's too much. I don't, you can call him daddy and brother and baby doll till the cows come home. That does not make it a a, um, a charming family for me. I didn't care for it. It's not for me. I see why other people might r- resonate with it. I sure did not. It took me three tries to get through it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I just got bored. I got so bored. Is that, I mean, it was, a, it was boring. It was a boring movie to me. Um, well, I guess I guess we have differing opinions on this film. I I enjoyed the the world. I enjoyed the characters. I I will admit, like you, I did laugh quite a bit as soon as they're like, "This is baby doll," or "This is doll," "This is brother," "This is." I can't remember what the littlest <laughs> kid was. Uh, you know, th- that's daddy. I'm mother. You know, yeah, and like yeah. and, like they all had these names, and all I could think of was Burl Ives. <laughs> in uh, uh kind of haunted roof i'm like when is he gonna come walking yeah. in like literally like that's uh, like, i instantly went to that um and so it was, that was like i was like oh my god these southern stereotypes and and i did like i rolled my eyes i'm like here we are another uh and again you know we we hadn't quite crossed a line where people were reevaluating a lot of this sort of storytelling but like just watching a story like this and i mean they were all you know much more uh advanced in their thinking i guess we'll say as far as like you know like black people should have more rights and things like that like they said all of that stuff but i think i counted one black person in the entire film and yeah. so it's still it felt very much like a film that was made at that time when mm-hmm. it was, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I guess it was you know, more okay to just kind of tell the sort of story and, and really just kind of gloss over all that stuff with a few lines here and there, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I, you know, I just kind of rolled my eyes. I'm like, ah, oh, this is just one of these films, but like the characters I found interesting, the, the journey of, of buddy, um, I, and and I I don't know was that his name uh, or and they just called him brother like uh, I don't know but or was that another nickname like you'll never know 
Yeah. Um, but, so it was one of those funny things, <laughs> but, but all in all, um, it was, it was an, it, I mean, I didn't love the film. Um, I think it's interesting. So many people found so much love for the film. Um, but I did find it to be a really interesting coming of age story. I enjoyed the characters. Like I really, I didn't have the issues you did. I, I mean, Robert Duvall, I did say a number of times to myself, God, Robert Duvall does that kind of, kind of quiet chuckle to himself so often in so many movies like it's just yes. such a robert duvall thing i don't think i noticed it until here though i mean it is it, oh, yeah, i just realized it he is such it a robert duvall thing it, he does he does it all the time but it, here is where it felt most out of place to me and that's what oh, made I, me start I didn't, thinking about i didn't think it. It. it felt i don't know i guess it felt fine for the film um but he wasn't my favorite part of it i definitely enjoyed um kind of uh, you know, the Lucas Haas character's story. I, there were elements of, of Daddy and Rose that I did enjoy, like when they drove her into town and stuff like that. I really loved Laura Dern. I thought her character was really interesting. And I really loved Mom, Mommy, um, I guess is what they call her. Um, <laughs> just, mommy. Or Mother. 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 Yeah, mother. Is mother. mother and Daddy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there there were a lot of really interesting character moments in the film and just kind of the way it unfolds. Um, I But I, I never found it boring, but I just never, I never kind of clicked with it as much as I uh, wanted to. Or like looking at some of these other views, I was like, wow, they really, I can see where they're getting a lot of this um, en enjoyment in the way, like, you know, um, what you said with uh, Roger Ebert saying it's an ensemble, uh, it's an ensemble's ensemble, stuff like that. Um, like I, I can definitely see kind of the draw to that sort of sort of stuff and the nostalgia and but I I, I found it to be a really interesting character piece but I didn't I didn't love it. So, so the the script is um, uh, written by Calder Calder Willingham and based on uh, his own novel based on his which own is based novel. on his own life somewhat. Which, <laughs> he's a real he, the, he's a bloomin' onion of complexity. Yeah, he, he completely Willingham. fictionalized. It's autobiographical about his childhood, um, as it says on his Wikipedia page, featuring comic characterizations of his parents and siblings. The one fully fictional character is Rose. Rose, after which the property is named, is right. fictional. Yeah, fully fictional. I think that he just created her uh, to basically tell his childhood story and his, his um, curiosities of sex as a young boy. Yeah. She's she's a vessel mm. for those uh, explorations. So I get that. So there there are pieces of this, and I know. I mean, he writes this as a a, a boy experienced in the South, and yet the way it is performed feels, feels like it's people who speak, you know, with a, uh, a a typically sort of Yankee vernacular, throwing in some deep Southernisms. And uh, it felt really shoehorned to me. And so the script I, I struggled with. I struggled. Maybe it's that I struggled with, you know, how um, Robert Duvall was was playing it or Lucas Haas was was playing it and, and reading some of those lines. But it just it it felt transparent to me um, that I was I was watching people who memorized lines uh, and that um, that I. I, I just struggled really getting into the world as a result of some of the performative issues uh, oh. I had. It, okay. it was just that I, I really struggled with the way this was written for them to speak. I guess Weird, because <laughs> I didn't feel that at all. 
Uh, so really that's interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually really enjoyed kind of the dialogue, the script. I, I felt all of that felt very, um, again, coming from a non Southerner, but it all felt authentic to me. I really enjoyed the way that they're the the characters played and interacted and the different the different angles and stuff like there was a moment um that i just was so enamored with it's when mother and daddy are talking to the doctor about this hysterectomy and 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 uh rose's you know sexed up nymphomania and all that sort of stuff <laughs> and the two men are kind of like yeah it's probably for the best and mother is just like, I can't believe this. And the way that that conversation plays with daddy and how Robert Duvall like has that moment and, and turns around like that, that really hit me. Like that was such a powerful moment. I, I loved moments like that and the way that they played in the film. Well, I generally like Diane Ladd. Like if, if there is a high point, it's Diane Ladd's performance, especially because she, she is that grounding element for, um, you know, sort of the nature of the spirit and the creative, you know, life and, and all of that. And she actually, I think, has a really, um, sort of a fun way to explore her brand of intelligentsia, uh, and particularly in conflict with Robert Duvall's sort of down home. Um, down homeness of it. That I, I'm glad you brought up that scene because I think the play between Ladd and Duvall is great. There, I could not get over Kevin Conway as the Doctor. Right? He his his sort of mania, his manic evil of or is it not not mania? That's not the word. He's he's his sort of expression of evil doctoring. It was too much. It was too much for me, Andy. It was too much for me to take seriously. I had to pause scenes with, with him toward the end in that that very sequence as he's talking about uh, how, you know, her neurological problem is going to be fixed by removing the the other ovary. It, his I don't know if it was his voice, if it was just that he was miscast. He's such a it was such a broad casting choice to make him with that voice be the vessel of uh, anti-feminism in this movie. I I just it was it was too much. It was too broad right, because of the actor, because, you know, him from other things like because he's not so I, like I recognize his face generally, but he's kind of a that guy. And I, I couldn't tell you. Where I've ever well, seen no, him before, I, and I would no, I wouldn't even say. I mean, I, I, he is that guy. That that is a great. That oh, I thought I thought you were saying like, oh, because it's Kevin Conway. No, I can't. no, I just okay. wanted to make sure that people knew I was talking about Kevin Conway, yeah. so I used his name. His sure, sure, performance sure. is too much for me. It is a huh. it, it 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 was not subtle. Like, of course, he's the bad guy and of course he represents the medical establishment and medical establishment is bad and we've already got a little bit of woo woo in mother and uh but you know what that scene the the high point of that scene is the fact that it really demonstrates the sort of power um exchange between mother and daddy and that turn, I think, is really very good and interesting. And I love how Diane Ladd controls a scene and and takes control of a scene. Right. And that is a great example, because performatively, she is relegated to the side. And when she turns around those lines, they they allow her to uh, really demonstrate her dominance between those two. And um, and, and so I, I really like that. 
And I also feel like Dr. Martinson is is a real example of of, you know, the other side of that. Like it was just too much. I didn't have any issues with him. I actually um, thought that character played fine. But I do have a question. I wonder if we saw a different movie. Is there a different Rambling Rose? Did we see a different movie? I wonder if we saw different movies. Well, you do hate 2001 and I love it. So I, I have a feeling, uh, you know, this is par for the course. Um, I, I, I enjoyed him as a character quite a bit. But I, and I have a question for you because, and I wonder if this is, I don't know. I guess I wonder if this plays into the way I read the scene and, and him and, and how you're reading the scene. Um, maybe not. Who knows? Do you think that she is actually pregnant and he by him and he's covering it up by saying, oh, she needs to have the surgery to remove this ovary? Or do you think that he is actually does actually have an ovarian cyst and she and he's removing that? Because I was like, did he get her pregnant? And this is his way of of aborting the baby, basically, by by chopping her up and kind of taking it out on her. Wow, Andy, I feel silly for not seeing it that way at all now well like, i'm not I, saying I, it's I didn't right. catch that i'm just saying no i like, didn't that read was an interesting way. read because like when he was up in the bedroom like he would come over to their house and you know both buddy and daddy were like what is he doing up there and when he came down he looked all kind of guilty and stuff and you know i was just like wondering and and of course you know rose is kind of falls for any man who comes by i'm like i wonder if they had done something and he got her pregnant. Wow. No, I'm, I didn't catch that. I'm, I'm, str- <laughs> I didn't catch that. As a cynic, I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I should have, but I did not, I did not catch any of that. My, my, I can see how that, that it could be read that way. I could see. Yeah. I mean, it, who knows? It, it, I could be completely, you know, making something else up, but I, I think that there's, there is something there that could be read that way. Yeah. I think that's, I, I would agree with that. It makes him that. even darker of a doctor, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, all right. The, so the doctor, we, we've, you love the doctor. I don't like the doctor. That's, we've agreed on that. Uh, <laughs> My new best friend. Dr. I do Martin love Diane Ladd. I, I think she's, I think as a performer, I think she's, she's great. I think it's weird that they make the, like, uh, they, they piled a lot of stuff onto her character, right? She's a reader. We, she definitely reads a lot. Um, but she's, well, she's also getting her master's degree. She's getting her master's and she's, uh, definitely hearing impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, she's also, she's, she's a spiritualist, I, I yeah. think is, is how I would put her. There's just a lot. She's carrying a lot compared to everybody else in this movie. She is complexity. They, and next to her, there is no complexity. Like every, I feel like I'm getting everything I need to get from, they're wearing it on, on their sleeves. Um, and so, uh, there's that. Now let's, let's talk about sex, baby. Well, okay. So here's the thing. There aren't many, but there are a few films that deal with, sex and and coming of age uh in a situation where it ends up being a a kid or a younger person and an an older person somebody under 18 and somebody over 18 Mm -hmm. um it does happen in films it it happens here uh I, i feel like there was what was the recent one um Call me by your name, is, or no? Call me by my name. What's it called? Call me by your name. <laughs> call me by your name. Call me. <laughs> call my name. 
Call a name. I mean, <laughs> I'll answer to whatever name you call me. Is that call me the original by title. your name? Um, <laughs> that one. That's like a more recent one. And and so I think that there there is this element of coming of age, and I do think it turns into something that angers a lot of people when it comes up because I think there's this this element of you know sexual exploration that uh, can be a challenge um, in the film. Buddy is thirteen. Um, Lucas Haas, when he played it, was 15. And Laura Dern, I don't know how old her character is, um, but her uh, she was 24 at the time she was filming this. So, I mean, they are definitely doing something. It's a little different than something like Lolita. And I'm thinking more of the Adrian Lyne uh, version with Jeremy Irons, where they really talked about how they had to be very careful about how they performed the various scenes to make it, you know, so it wasn't sexual exploitation of a child, stuff like that. Brian's got us got us in the chat room. He says Rose's character is 19. Rose's character is 19. Mm-hmm. Interesting. OK, so that's interesting in context of things then um, that she's actually uh, they're closer in age to each other. Um, but yeah. she's uh, but also like, what did the doctor say? Like she had had gonorrhea. Is that what it was when she was 15? Gonorrhea and tuberculosis when she was 15. Yeah. And that's where she lost her first ovary. No, she didn't lose her ovary because he was going to take out her second ovary. She was just sterile. She was sterile. She was just but did sterile. she have two ovaries? Yeah. But he wanted to remove both of them and do a whole Oh, uh, removal of everything. Okay. She was uh, just that was sterile. not clear to me. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so go on. Again, you I'm, were saying. I'm convinced the doctor made it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I think the more I think about that, the more I think that read on it makes the movie even stupider. <laughs> like, come on. It did not like that. It, it, they didn't do it right, if that's the case. Like, why? How does she? Uh, okay, I know that further cements the fact that they're they're trying to position her as just a a you know complete nymphomaniac. Like all she wants to do is is uh, but she does dance, so to speak. Right, I know that that's the uh, that's the thing that's so frustrating. Like she is definitely desperate for a father figure, for a uh, just a some sort of relationship, for love, whatever it is. She's desperate for something, um, and the the movie paints her. I think clumsily as a, a nymphomaniac all the men are and there is this this sort of um like it go, this is an age-old story right it goes back to the for the bible for crying out loud right the the um man the king is weak uh made weak by momentary lust right it's the Bathsheba story like there is I, I was thinking about other like other tropey stories of like the young woman comes to town and it's like the Pied Piper of lust. Everybody like the, when she walks down the street in her in her sexy dress. Uh, right. And I, I say that with heavy air quotes on it. Why? Because like it feels so on the nose, like everything but it was about a sexy this dress. is so on the nose. It was a sexy dress. It was like she made the dress like she said. She what are you made putting the dress. in quotes? The sexy dress or the walk or. Well, what? because it seems like the the movie is just so ham fisted about making it sexy dress, like it it's it, and and when she walks down the street and all heads turn, it is so heavy handed. I'm like, I get it already. Everybody loves her. I get it. Like I didn't like that scene when he the daddy goes. Uh, uh, she's going, he, he goes around the corner and he and brother are sitting in the car watching her in her parade of sexy dress. I, it was, 
I just, I, it was all, that was one of the moments I was like, oh, I got to get up and get something to eat. I'm so done with this right now. Do I have to watch the end of this movie? <laughs> so this is so stupid. This is so stupid. Uh, so it, it was, it, it was just it, like, I, uh, had I been in a better mood about it, I think it would have been like, it could have been played for straight up comedy uh, because it was so dumb. I don't think the movie was trying to present as a comedy. Uh, no, I, I, I well, I, but I, I, yeah, I would say that there's definitely some humor in it. You know, I, I think that uh, Martha Coolidge was enjoying that play uh, in her film of this idea of the sexuality of a woman. And as she said, one of the themes was sexuality of a woman is the subject of a movie, not the object of the movie. And, you know, this is this character who, who everybody thinks is sexy. And, you know, it, I, I, I think that there was something interesting about it. And, it, I mean, a darker version of the story would go down the uh, kind of the accused rabbit hole where, yes. you know, things happen to her because she's just enjoying being um, young and beautiful and and, you know, men do terrible things. In this particular case, it's a different story. She's young and beautiful and enjoying herself and enjoying the affections that she's getting from people because they find her beautiful. And uh, she enjoys that. And because, again, she's she's looking for that affection that that caring that that love from people that she's never really experienced and she really wants to experience and her only knowledge of that and i think this is what happens when when uh, a young person is broken by things that um, they don't understand is that i think that she thinks that a lot of that comes from sex and that she needs to you know like that's a part of this whole thing and, uh, you know, so I think that she's very happy that she's getting so much affection when she's walking around and she knows she looks great and she's taking it all in and she's, you know, she's happy to hook up with the guy at the bus stop and, and, you know, cause she's looking for that connection. And so, um, I, I, I think that there is some humor in the way that that is portrayed. Uh, and because I think it is kind of very joyous and she's just so, I don't know about, um, I, I, I don't know if naive is the right word, but she's very um, kind of just whimsical about kind of, you know, sharing herself with the world because she's just so, so happy and is, is looking for something. And so I don't know. I, I, I don't have those issues with the way that it's played. Is it perfect? No, I, I, I still kind of stumble over some of these things that it is, it can be, um, you know, fairly straightforward at times, but I, I don't, um, I don't find it stupid. I, I think that there's more to it than that. Hmm. Do you think she is stupid? No. Well, stupid, I think, is is a very difficult term anyway. I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. You mean just she's not a smart character? Right. Not a smart character, because that is one of the big questions of the movie, is that she is, her naivety is that she's, you know, she actually has no clue what she's doing and can't, um, and, and is just motivated by, um, you know, by lust or, you know, other people's lust for her uh, and that she is she has no agency, uh, that she is so manipulated by her own hormones. Um, I think that she's um, she's a simple character. Uh, I think she's um, she very much is wanting to have a connection. And I think that's that's the way that she is played is she wants a connection the way that she gets it is by sex and and that's the connection she has but that's not what she's looking for she's looking for something that actually is more than that but she 
I, I, but, but I the only that, language she speaks is sexuality. Yeah, because I, I think that it, I don't know the way that it was portrayed is like I mean she she ran home at um, thirteen I think is what I said thirteen or fourteen and was kind of she was making her own way in life and I have a feeling that you know a lot of things had happened to her and um, that was how she found connections with people and I think as you know, I, I think that's what happens with a lot of people who fall into lives of prostitution, probably, is that they're looking for a connection at a young age. And that's, you know, sadly, when they feel that affection, you know, and I, I think that's why she's, you know, runs away from Birmingham or wherever it was where those guys wanted her to be a prostitute and stuff, because she was looking for something that was more than that. Yeah, I mean, I I can I, I can sort of see that, and I feel like that begs the question of, like, is is the portrayal of that interest in the film interesting enough for the whole film? And uh, and that is the part where I just sort of ran, I just ran up a ground. Well, in the movie, no, and I mean, that, I, I struggle with some of that too. I mean, I think I think it's interesting. I think her story is interesting. I I don't think it's enough to carry the whole film. And that's why I think that there's kind of the interesting relationships that she has with daddy and mother and buddy and like that family dynamic that she kind of grows into because I think that it allows for more things as, as daddy is drawn into her web when she first kind of comes onto him and he, he nearly goes down that road before he's like, what am I doing? This is stupid. You know, <laughs> put yourself away, you know, there was a really interesting aspect to daddy in his struggles with what she, what she was. And I can see why he went down that road of wanting to agree with the doctor because he was ashamed of what it meant for himself, you know? And yeah. so that was, that was what I found so interesting with him as a character and learning to kind of look past that and see the person and say, you know what, she's, she is struggling and she just needs the love and, and ends up becoming the family for her that she had never had before. And that's what I found so interesting in that family dynamic. And that's something I think mother always sensed and, mm -hmm. and was there. And she saw that what she needs is love. That's what she's looking for. And, and, you know, it was, it was a lesson for Buddy to learn, too, as, as he was trying to, you know, figure out his own feelings. Okay. Uh, one side question. There, during the kissing scene, when she gets on his lap and is like they're about to kiss and her face is leaning in and there's all that, oh, tension, tension. <laughs> and then he says, you want to kiss, you want to kiss on the lips or on the mouth? What is the difference, Andy, between kissing on the lips and kissing on the mouth? Is that a is that a Southern thing that I don't understand? Uh, if he if he said that, I don't remember him specifically saying that. OK. All right. Well, I, I had never heard that, but apparently that is a thing that is different. And I'm, I'm being corrected real time. Lips closed. Mouth equals tongue included. Mouth equals tongue included. That's what they're talking about. I'd never heard that. But I've learned something new. One point for Rambling Rose. Um, Martha Coolidge made this well, movie. Well, hold oh, on. Oh, John we Hurd. About... We got to talk about John Hurd, too. Well, and Lisa uh, before we, I think we're, we're leaving out. Uh, Lucas Haas, and I think we need to talk about his story because I think that there's a very interesting element of this young kid doing this um, and playing a role like this. And this is this, I mean, he was 15 at the time making this movie. Now, uh, according to Martha Coolidge, you know, other than him actually, you know, touching her breasts when they were filming, 
Uh, the rest of the stuff obviously was, you know, cinematic magic. They're obviously not actually doing anything. Um, but it is set up to be something. And that is something that she said, um, that they were looking for in a kid. And Lucas Haas had been acting in dozens of films by this point and was a kid that, um, I, I'm, so, I'm so curious about the conversations had with parents about performing a film like this, because this was, as they said, it was kind of like, um, his own as an actor or no, as, as a, as a child, as a 15 year old, um, you know, it said his great gift. And this is a quote from Martha Coolidge. Uh, his, his great gift in rambling Rose is that he shared something important. His first experience with sex with the audience, yet the whole scene is an illusion, except when he touches Laura's breasts. I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I don't think I am, surprised by 15 year olds wanting to touch breasts because uh, you know we were yeah. all 15 year old boys at one point in time and uh i'm i'm certain had uh our own um stories that we have but uh, but i think it's I, I don't know i guess i'm really curious about the line in the world of of making a production of something like this versus something like lolita where they is it because he was a young boy and in Lolita, she was a young girl and they had to be so careful about what was done as far as preventing, you know, things between an adult and a child, as opposed to what it doesn't sound like they were doing here. I don't know. Did that strike you odd? It just, just in the production sense at all. <laughs> just in the, the, which part, like it's all, it's all odd, but I totally get it. Well, I'm and not that talking a, about the story. I'm talking about yeah. the actual production of the movie. Yes, I suppose it I suppose it does. I, I was thinking about it like would I what would my re reaction be to a director coming to me and saying, here's what I need your son to do, because my son is 15. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, hats off to Lucas Haas, because I don't think <laughs> I don't think my son could pull it off. <laughs> if I were a 15 year old boy, I'd say, sign me up. You don't even have to pay me. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, you're a 15 year old 100%. boy, a horny, horny little kid who wants to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And that's what I'm saying. Like this, the, I think Lucas Haas's performance, a uh, restrained performance in this scene <laughs> was unreal. Like I, I would not have been able to pull that off as 15 year old. Like that was, I would, unreal. Uh, 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 uh. I know, God. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it without uh, like, uh, really demeaning myself as an idiot child. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the problem is we, that's, <laughs> Yeah, we don't have the skill Lucas Haas does. Clearly. Yeah, we don't. We really, I mean, at he the age was, of 15, no. that was a, an incredibly, like, I thought that was an incredibly restrained performance. And, um, and, and also, like, for that's him performatively. It's also, you know, um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a, it's a fantasy, right? It's a fantasy. And we know it's a fantasy. I just feel like this is one of the things that sort of coming of age scenes that happens in these sorts of movies occasionally that maybe they kind of have to be there. But it, it does seem like a, a particular kind of of male gaze that makes me just a little bit like it just turns me off. You know what I mean? Like, like who, who, <sighs> why? why? this scene why this scene well 
Okay. Well, I, I want to come back to that, but I will, I, I have to say the way that it was scripted was so authentic to 15 year old male brain, like the things that he's saying and like the curiosity factor. And it's not like, he doesn't yeah. even know what he would do. You know, no. if it came no, down he's, to actually he's a doing dog something, chasing a he's car. just like, Oh, yeah. can I touch this? What is that? Oh, that's interesting how this feels. Yeah. Like the way that I was like, this is, it feels so real the way that everything that he was scripted was saying. Now I want to talk a little bit about male gaze because I don't feel like it was done in any male gaze sort of way. So it's interesting that you say that. And I, I think this may be one of the reasons that Martha Coolidge directed it because, because it's not playing in a way where it's like, I think the male gaze version of this would be, like uh, a lot more similar to when she was with Robert Duvall, you know, where there would be a lot more flesh seen and it would be a lot more uh, stuff happening, you know? And I think this was done in a way where I found it so interesting in the way that, I don't know, I guess there was an interesting psychological element going on with Rose in this particular scene. And again, needing to find this connection, but finding it with the wrong person Mm -hmm. and, but not being able to stop because, she was getting you know, the, the pleasure out of it. And so, I don't know, I just found it to be so interesting. Well, and that's why, like, I use male gaze, like, intentionally here, because that's, like, the culmination of how she's presented. I mean, even from her walking across the bridge in the very beginning, um, like, she is covered in sweat. She's, like, dabbing a, 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 a handkerchief on her chest, like, down between her breasts. Like, she's really, like, leaning into the sexy ingenue and the way she's lit from behind. Uh, her dress is see-through. You know, you can see kind of the shape of her on, uh, and her legs and her butt. Like, you can... It is really portraying her as, you know, Buddy is watching her cross the bridge in a hypersexualized way, right? And so all of the way he is lusting after her, and I know that's that's the intent of the film. Like that's the 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 movie might have been called yeah, it's his perspective. You know, Rambling Rose's male gaze. Yeah, like this is his perspective. So I get it. But then like what is it what is it that gets her into his room in the first place? Like, is it because she was so horny after her near experience with daddy that she just has to, to, you know, let off some steam and she decides that the, the closest, you know, proximate answer to that search is brother. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. And it's, I think that's, that's a more psychological examination of Rose and like the fact that she just needs, you know, a, a companion in that moment because she's not getting into bed with him for anything to happen. Like that isn't her intention. I don't think she even recognized that Buddy, a young kid, had any of these interests yet. Like her eye has never been drawn to him. And so I think her there is just like, I, I just need a companion uh, to to lie next to right now. And I think that was kind of what drew her into that space. I find that's that really empty in in the context of this story. I find that like I it doesn't there's there's no way for me to rationalize her um, her interest in climbing into bed with him that makes it uh, is okay the word that makes it okay because if she is really naive then and and doesn't see him as a as a boy who is you know learning his own sexuality um, then. 
her character is, you know, less interesting, <laughs> less interesting to me. And if she really is uh, this hypersexualized character and knows exactly what she's doing, then the character is more interesting to me. But then it's like, OK, uh, that that is answering all of the early films, male gaze stuff. And neither one of those initiatives in the film narratively, I find um, well enough thought out to be sort of earned or performed or whatever. I, I, I struggle with them to the point where I just, it doesn't feel uh, at home in, in the film to me. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying it's perfect. Like I, 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 that's the reasoning that I, I got out of the film as to why she went in there. Does it make complete sense to me? No, it doesn't. It's a little, um, you know, sloppy as far as like how that construction actually happens in order to get him to get her in there. Yeah. Um, but like once she's there, like I, I just kind of go along with the, with it as it's, as it's portrayed. And I, you know, I, I, I can see how, how it's played. I, I just, I, I don't think it's a, a perfectly built scene, but I think it's, I think it's, I, I don't know, in context of getting us to the place where we needed to, for the two of them, I guess it works. But yeah, it's a it's a little um, uh, not as well put together. Yeah, it's it's much. Yeah, uh, Martha Coolidge. You you did bring up Martha Coolidge. Um, you know, she had said the themes that drew her to the story were humanity, love, forgiveness. As I already said, the sexuality of a woman is the subject of a movie, not the object of the movie. Loss, remembering family that's gone, first love, moral questions faced and conquered. Uh, I think that definitely, and this was from the book itself, like, uh, and then the script that he had subsequently written. Um, I, I think there are a lot of interesting elements to explore in, in the context of this story. Uh, I mean, we've talked about Martha Coolidge a few times now. What did you think of what she was bringing to the table with uh, with the film? Well, I expected it to be funnier, so that's on me. Well, that's the that's the downside of coming into this after having talked about yeah. Coolidge's comedies. <laughs> Real genius and Valley Girl and yeah, that's that's on me. I I absolutely ag- agree that that's that's a challenge that I might have. But uh and so that context shift uh is uh was, you know. Did you but did you really go into this thinking it was a comedy? I I thought it was going to be funnier, but I also thought it was going to be a, a movie about music. I thought it was going to be a country music like road movie. I think that's that's also another movie that I that this movie was not. Um, so lots of baggage going in um, that that didn't didn't quite work for for me. Obviously, my baggage. I, I think there there are a couple of things going on. First of all, I think she nailed the look of the film. Though in reading uh, some other insights on the the movie and the production design while i think it worked well the the challenge of being a movie that's set in georgia and not filmed in georgia um it, it clearly drives southerners kind of bonkers this is another one of those movies that just doesn't look like where it is set if you're from there and i get that um but i liked the the look of it. I liked the way it was portrayed. I liked the way they used the house, uh, you know, moving around the house. Uh, and the house was an uh, extraordinary piece of architecture. I mean, it was just lovely. Every, like, I loved where they shot it. And and I love the way she captures the kids running up and down the stairs and between the hallways as they spy on on each other. I think it was architected well, right? The, the problems that I have with the movie have nothing to do with how it was, uh, how it was built. Uh, you? I mean, I agree with all of that. The, this was just a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Like the whole thing felt like it almost was shot sepia tone. Like just the the lighting, 
the production design, everything just, just, you know, struck a chord with, you know, um, memories of the good old days of the halcyon days, you know, it just, it had just this feel to it that I just, I felt, uh, it just viscerally, like I, I could, I, I felt like I could be here. I felt the heat. I just felt everything. It was just, um, a stunning film to look at. I enjoyed the way that Coolidge, uh, played it. Like I enjoyed the, the way that she handled the characters and everything. Like I, I really think she carried it well. Again, I don't necessarily think that the script, I think my biggest issues with it really are the script as far as, like, it could have had a little more to it. There are these elements that, uh, that we've talked about that, that some of them, it's like, you know, I, I, I feel like it's just getting us there without giving us quite as much. But, um, but I just, I still, I really enjoy the characters. And I think that's where I think Martha Coolidge really comes through in bringing these characters to life and capturing these moments like, you know, it, you know, before the uh, conversation here, we were uh, in the pre-show, we were chatting a little bit about just that image of Laura Dern teaching the kids to play the combs and, and stuff like those little moments. It's just like, it's just a little scene that doesn't need to be there, but it captures the feel of, of this whole story. And so, you know, I, I, I think that Martha Coolidge brought a lot to that to kind of create this world. We we've already talked about the fact that we like her as generally as a director, and I think she's um, I think she's good at it. Like she's a competent director, um, and and I can also see the affinity that she has with the story as presented. I it, the, that's why I want to make it so clear that this movie is not for me. Clearly, it's not for me, but I can see why some people have an attachment to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we haven't really talked about John Hurd. We haven't talked about John Hurd. Should we do an aside on John Hurd? in this movie he is the vessel for the flashback (laughs) he's our framing device (laughs) he is the grown buddy our framing device um wilcox it's this truly is a bookend framing device we only see him at the very beginning there's not voiceover at all through the whole film it's just him at the beginning coming back home because daddy called him and so he's back home and then at the very end to find out uh, what had happened to uh, to Rose. And that's that's the framing device. And um, that's it with John Hurd. And I, I just have to say, this is really funny because I was I was struck right away with John Hurd. Like <laughs> he looks a little different. Why does he look different? His hair. That's kind of a funny haircut. He's doing an accent. You know, I get it. And then I realized, oh, they actually put something behind his ears to make them stick out a little bit so that you could buy it a little bit more that he is Lucas Haas grown up. Because you know how old John Hurd was when he made this? How old? 45. You know how old Lucas Haas is right now? <laughs> is he 45? 45. <laughs> Go look at a picture of Lucas Haas. <laughs> tell me. Tell me he could have grown into John Hurd. Oh, that's a that's a, Lucas Haas. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always enjoyed him but uh he has a very unique look you should definitely go look at the imdb page where it shows their pictures side by side um because they there is no conceivable way that he could have grown <laughs> into that man this i have an aside i i, I have an aside that i want to ask you um all right what is your opinion on do like do you are you more comfortable though with this sort of thing where you know the old world movie making where you play a kid and and that kid plays or is played by a, a, another actor as a grown-up 
Do you prefer it when it's like a Robert Redford sort of thing in in uh, The Natural where he's going to play that kid no matter how old he is? Or would you rather have the de-aging done? Well, and I, obviously they weren't doing this at the day, but would you rather have yeah, like, no, no. Oh, I, I don't care for the, I don't think I care for the de-aging yet. I don't, I don't think it's they've quite nailed it. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I think young actors is the way to go. And, and so, and I didn't, you know, while I was watching the movie, I didn't think twice about John Hurd, Lucas Haas. Like I, I really didn't like, I just, I got it immediately they cut back in time and we now have a young boy and it's fine uh john heard was was all but out of my head so i you know what about you there are moments like this where i'm like you know what john heard is just in the beginning and end does it matter that much they're doing something with his ears i get it um but i definitely appreciate it more when it's something like uh you know the actor we had playing the young tom hanks in big um, where I felt like I can see that kid growing up to be Tom Hanks. Like I, I can buy that more like this one. I just felt it was a little bit more of a stretch, but it's also like, who are you going to find that can play an old Lucas Haas? That's such a, that's such a big ask. Yeah. Right. Johnny Depp. But unfortunately, Johnny Depp and Lucas Haas were too close. Yeah. In age, right. Right. Yeah. 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 So the, um, uh, but I have a bigger question. I actually have two related bigger questions about the framing device. Okay. Okay. Number one is the narrative challenge that I have with this. I think this movie overstates or does not make a strong enough position that finding out that Rose died is enough of a reason to get adult Wilcox Hillier in the car to drive down to see Daddy. I think it's stupid and they should have just told the story straight because but when he finds out, oh, you know, Rose is dead. That's why I'm having you come all the way down here to see me. I thought, why don't you just call? (laughs) Why don't you just like, why don't you just pick up the phone and make that phone call? Because this was not a reason. I think now that I am an adult, I can think of like very I just I can't think of a relationship that I would have had like this that would cause me to get in the car and drive across the country. It's because you never had a relationship like this. Well, that is for sure. I never had a relationship (laughs) like this. So that is number one. Uh, And the related question is, do you do you like the framing device in general? Would this movie have have been equally served without it on either side? Like just telling the story straight. I think daddy is lonely and his son never visits. And so he set this thing up so that he could just get him down here. And it was more like, oh, yeah, by the way, Rose died. But really, I just wanted you to come see me because you never visit anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Then then I, I then that leads me to my second question. Why is there a framing device in the first place? It's it's a it's a terrible framing device. I I really don't like the framing device at all. I guess what I get out of it is the fact that what I, what I think their intentions were is showing that even after uh, I don't know forty years or so, I think is I mean this the the young story takes place sometime in the depression. I don't think it's ever specified what year, but it's sometime in the thirties. We'll just say mm-hmm. and the. Framing device is 1971. We do get that at the very beginning. So 40 years, let's just say, um, to show that this person had such a huge influence on 
their lives that um that you know daddy wanted to give him the news in person because he, even he knew how much um uh buddy had been affected by and how much he was in love with uh rose as a as a child and so i think there was um a read that daddy knew that and so wanted to tell him um it's i i think i got that without the framing device you know my sense of the framing device was um that was calder uh willingham uh who wrote the book in 19 i think the book came out in 72 um so right at the time <laughs> when the basically when the framing device is set and i think that was him putting something in here that tied it more directly to perhaps the way the novel was written and again I, i'm not familiar with the novel itself so i don't exactly know but that was my sense of the framing device and to that end um it just it it's a stumble it didn't need it i got him crying in the back seat as a young kid i got it i didn't need any of this to be part of the story at all well and i think that's a big that's the big question the allegiance to the book as a memoir uh, of sorts is uh, i think what that framing device is trying to accomplish right that we're reading we're seeing a story that was written by a guy and you're about to see the the kid who is also that guy and and for some reason we feel strongly that you the audience need to know that and i did not i don't think need to know that there there may have been a better way to just start the movie straight and then close the movie with a jump forward in time that also could have been okay where we see you know if if that's important to you to say that rose is dead like I actually go a step further back and say, do we need to know that Rose died? What's the, like, what what value was that at the end of the movie? Didn't we already get what we needed to get at the end of the movie uh, before they jumped back to the current state in time? And and of course, it could very well be that I didn't care about any of this. <laughs> and so maybe that's why I didn't care about that she was dead. Well, it's it's a it's a struggle. And you know, it's interesting because we leave Rose when she gets married. You know, she marries this cop whose thumb she had bit, and that was all cute. We get that moment at the picnic or barbecue about where we discover that he's not Mr. Right. He's not the greatest guy. Um, and but it's interesting because, like, Rose is a lot. And uh, as there's as as mother and daddy are talking, you know, he, boy, I don't know if she's going to be if he's going to be able to handle all that. Um, you know, I don't know if he's really is Mr. Right, uh, even if she thinks he is. Um, but I had a sense just the way the scene played of darkness. Like, is he going to be violent at some point or what? Like, I just wasn't sure exactly where, where they were going with that last conversation. And that is all I really needed to know. Rose is not going to have a great future like she's going to really struggle whether she's with a person who's violent or whether she never can quite find the right guy as we do find out in the flashbacks but i felt it or not in the flashbacks in the in the uh, framing device if in the jump forward yeah. um but i felt it was all there and so why put the framing device in because all that stuff was there i could see it in the way that the scene was playing that it's not going to be easy i see that he's upset like everything's there just cut the framing device. And it, it is very much, and this is the struggle of an author adapting his own screenplay of, of needing to put those things in. And, you know, I, I feel like that's something that, um, you know, the producers or director, you know, it, 
you know, looking at it at a different point in time might have been able to say, you know, we really don't need that. Let's just tell the story as is in the Great Depression. Well, I guess I I guess I struggle with it knowing that Rose is herself a completely fictionalized character, right? That that what we're doing here is we're spending a lot of ink trying to set the stage for things didn't work. It took a long time for things to work out for Rose, but ultimately things worked out for Rose, right? Ultimately, she found a guy. She We hear from the voiceover, she was married three times and then was married that last one for 25 years and she was happy and she, she was never, she, she was uh, uh, always faithful in those last 25 years, right? Eventually, it was a happy ending for her and then she died. My question is, why did we need the voiceover telling us she eventually found happiness when we already got the story that she overcame a lot of stuff in the time that we get to be with her on screen? Why couldn't she have just been happy with the cop that she bit the the thumb of, right? Why couldn't that have been the end? I felt like all the other stuff was just piling on a story we already got. Eventually, Rose found happiness. That's the end of the movie. That is the end of the movie as we get it. Rose eventually found happiness. It could have been Rose eventually found happiness in the timeline of the movie that we got. I think the rest of it is useless. Yeah, I think we're in violent agreement. Clearly. Very violent and agreeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Did you want to mention something about Lisa Jacob, the young girl? I did. Lisa Jacob. Yeah. So, you know, Lisa Jacob, right? She plays doll or doll baby. She sure does. Uh, and she was an actor in a lot of things that you would have seen her in. She was as a kid, uh, as actor. a kid. Right. Yeah. Right. Child actor. She was in um, she's 40 credits, Matinee, 40 credits. Independence Day, Mi- Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so she's been in a lot, a lot of stuff. And. Uh, apparently there was some uh, conversation about things got really hard for her in Hollywood. And she wrote this blog post on her website. <laughs> That is HelloLisaJacob.com, where she says quite clearly, no, things were fine. I retired. After an 18-year career, I changed jobs, and I'm not an actor anymore. And it is about as uh, clear and um, like thorough and non-confrontational and non-story as you could possibly get. Lisa Jacob, who I think was a fine child actor, retired and is now a teacher of yoga and a podcaster podcaster we like those that's the whole that's the whole story yeah (laughs) hello my name is lisa jacob and i used to be an actor or the answer to why did you quit acting and it is the non-storiest non-hollywood story that you could find she did she has talked about on her blog like dealing with anxiety and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and and depression and stuff like that but i don't necessarily I, i haven't read any of it my but my impression from just a little research i did it was it was never pinned directly to this is why I got out of acting. It was just one of those things that somebody deals with is the way that I always interpret. So she said, she, she says in her post, have you ever quit a job? (laughs) That was, and I was like, Oh, right. Yeah, of course I've quit jobs. I've quit jobs. Uh, but I thought she was a fine, um, she was a, a fine addition to this. I just really know her from Mrs. Doubtfire. And, um, that I, I think was, it was fun seeing her in this movie. Yeah, it was. That's all. That's the whole story. Just a little bit more on the backstory of this film. So Calder Willingham, uh, when he wrote this in the early 70s, he, I mean, he's he's somebody who had been an author 
and a screenwriter, dancing back and forth between the two quite a bit. Uh, started writing novels in the 40s, started working on screenplays in the 50s. I mean, Stanley Kubrick had him do Paths of Glory. Um, he did some script rewrites on stuff like The Bridge on the River Kwai and Spartacus. Um, he actually was hired to write The Graduate, and then Mike Nichols threw his script out and had Buck Henry write it. And then uh, Willingham actually went to the WGA and had them uh, uh, you know, review the scripts. And that's how he ended up getting credit on it, because um, it was <laughs> not considered. Uh, they said, no, 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 both of them. This is the trick with adaptations is often they'll say, well, they all kind of have credit because you know, it's the same material. Yeah. But so they were credited together. But this, like, there was enough interest in this back in the 70s for them to actually start exploring a production of this. And what I find really interesting, especially having just had a conversation about Cactus Flower, is there was a point in time where they were planning to do a version of this with Walter Matthau playing Daddy, Lily Tomlin playing Mother, and Goldie Hawn playing Rose. How funny would that have been? <laughs> oh, my God. That would have been great. <laughs> That's so funny. So, um, but then... um. Martha Coolidge, when she came on in the mid-ish 80s or late 80s uh, to this, um, uh, it, it took a little while to get off the ground because, you know, it it deals with, as we've said, it's kind of a little bit of a Lolita-ish sort of story. And so a lot of people were hesitant. Um, but she, when she read the script, she instantly thought of Laura Dern, which I think is interesting. And then she did another project with Diane Ladd. And realized that she was the perfect mom, but then she actually is the one who had a lot of conflict internally about, like, is it weird to cast a mother, a real-life mother and daughter to play not a real-life mother and daughter? Like, are they going to, is there too much similarity? But she ended up kind of feeling it was okay. And I, I, yeah, I think there's enough difference in their looks where I never go, why why are mom and daughter not mom and daughter here? Like, I, I never worried about that, but I found that interesting. So, but they were still struggling. And so Laura Dern, she asked her boyfriend at the time, Rennie Harlan, to look at it. He said, you know, let's do this. And he wanted to produce it. He brought it to Mario Cassar, um, who also wanted to do it. And both of them are are European and they didn't have these these concerns that a lot of people in Hollywood had about kind of the sexuality of the story. And so that's kind of why those names that you wouldn't normally associate with a film like this are attached to this film, which I found so interesting because that was the first question. I'm like, Rennie Harlan, yeah. Mario Casar, what are these two doing making this film? And that's why. Not enough exploded is really what we're saying. There were not enough <laughs> explosions and maybe throw in a pirate ship or two. Yeah. Yeah. Then we've got a movie. Uh, okay. We'll be right back, but first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Falconer, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the all the stats for the awards and numbers at the numbers the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.com. Or find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it award season? 
this did okay for itself. Six wins, 15 other nominations. Uh, at the Oscars, this uh, made Oscar history uh, the first time a mother and daughter were nominated in the in uh, for the same film and different categories uh, or period, really, I suppose. Uh, Laura Dern was nominated for Best Actress and her mother, Diane Landon, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this film. They both lost. Laura Dern lost to Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. Diane Ladd lost to Mercedes Rule in The Fisher King. I can I can see both of those. I Mercedes Rules part is small enough where I could actually have seen Diane Ladd winning, but Mercedes Rules part is also a big character and I think I you know it's that one scene where she's talking to uh, across the table and you pull back and reveal she's talking to no one. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's why she won the Oscar. It's she's so good in that movie. Yeah. At the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, a lot of wins here. Uh, Best Feature, Rennie Harlan, as the producer, got his uh, Independent Spirit Award right there. Um, and Martha Coolidge won Best Director. Diane Ladd won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Robert Duvall was nominated for Best Male Lead, but lost to River Phoenix in My Own Private Idaho. And the cinematography was nominated, but lost to the film Kafka. At the L.A. Film Critics Association, Duvall was nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Michael Lerner in Barton Fink. At the National Society of Film Critics, uh, uh, the script was nominated for Best Screenplay, but ended up tying third place with Agnieszka Holland's uh, script Europa Europa, which we've talked about. Both of them lost to Naked Lunch, which we've also talked about, and Bugsy, which was the second place film. And last but not least, at the Young Artist Awards, Lisa Jacob was nominated for Young Actress, co-star, but lost to Sheila Rosenthal in Not Without My Daughter. And Lucas Haas was nominated for Best Young Actor, but lost to Ethan Embry in Dutch. I don't even remember Dutch. Dutch? Wasn't that the dog movie? No, Dutch is... No, it was the with, what's his name, the father on... Uh, married with Children. Married with Children, right? Uh-huh. I don't Ethan remember. Ethan Embry was in that. Wow. Would not have been able to pull that. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Uh, Dutch. To get to know his girlfriend's son, a working-class good guy, volunteers to pick him up from his prep school, only to learn that he isn't the nicest young man. Wow, Joe Beth Williams. John Hughes wrote the script. Yeah, I do not have a memory of that movie. Neither do I. Neither do I. Fascinating. How did it end up doing at the box office. Coolidge only got a small budget for her period film, $7.5 million or $14.1 million in today's dollars. The movie opened September 20th, 1991, opposite The Fisher King, there's Mercedes Rule again, The Indian Runner, Late for Dinner, and McBain. Despite a healthy dose of critical praise, it didn't get much of a release, opening only on 26 screens and landing in 16th place. It went on to earn $6.3 million or just under $11.8 million in today's dollars. That means the movie ended up a loser with an adjusted loss per finished minute of 20.7 thousand. Ouch. Okay. That sounds that's sounds like I'm not completely alone. Well, I didn't buy a ticket for it either when it came out. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, I, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. I uh, I feel like I'm I'm glad we watched this movie. I, it's a, it's John Hurt adjacent, um, and I I actually would like to go back and look at some John Hurt movies that that maybe broaden the net a little bit uh, after right. the last. I think we will. Few. I think I think we're going to with our. Well, you know, I mean, I, I it's nice seeing him what he does in bit parts. I mean, he's fine as the older Wilcox here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would like to go back and look at some, some things like Cutter's Way and things where he's, you know, got 
got more of a, a, a larger role. Yeah, right, right, right. But we, hey, I'd also like to throw Home Alone on the list. Why not? Why not? Get it on there. I, um, it, which would give us maybe arguably a little bit more John Hurt, but not a whole uh, lot. Probably, probably not more. a lot more. <laughs> probably not a lot more. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm glad we talked about the movie. Glad to get it in the catalog. Did not, did not love it as a film myself. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Salam Bombay. Andy, how, where do you land on your review of this movie? Uh, this is a it's a it's an interesting one because it's a film I I don't love the film. I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. I really enjoy the characters. Um, I I don't feel the need to return to this one, but I also feel like there's a lot of stuff going on here that I'll probably remember more than some other films um you know because it's i don't know i just i i, I enjoyed the world like uh, some solid world building here i think i'm going to give it three and a half but no heart okay three and a half that as you can probably imagine feels high to me but i am right now stuck in the perils of no half stars now that i've i've sort of gently started thinking about maybe just being a, a solid whole star guy. Two stars um, is where I kind of walked in. And after our conversation, I, I was leaning more toward one star, but that all of a sudden feels too low. So how do you massage that? Do you just give up on this new ideological worldview of no half stars? Uh, or do you say one star and a heart? No, that doesn't solve the problem. No, uh, I think I just have to to be a little bit more star genuous and land back where I originally was. It is a two star film for me and no heart. Uh, there is enough going on with how it was set and uh, the fact that there are able people doing able work in this movie. It's just not for me. Two stars, no heart. Okay. That gives it two and three quarters stars. So it'll round up to three on our uh, letterbox page. So what did you think about Ramblin' Rose? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel on Discord, where we will be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, 
our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Uh, I uh, Did you go high or low? I'm curious. I, I, because oftentimes when we go low, we'll pick a high one. But uh, something tells me you didn't want to do that. I actually went samesies. I actually, I went two stars. And in fact, I would like to open this discussion by saying, and I know he's in the chat room pitching his own review right now, Brian. He is a community member here and has been talking along with us. I had already picked his review before he started shilling for it. So I just want that to be out there. But that's where, that's where I landed with two stars. I am not going to read, well, maybe I'll read some of the quotes, but I do have Brian's Rambling Rose two-star review. Would, would you like to hear it? Yeah, but I, I really, I, I don't know if it is or not because I haven't read it, but I wanted you to say Brian's Rambling Rambling Rose just because, <laughs> you know, it feels like you it should is, say that. I feel like it, you I need to find should. a rambling review for it's the movie. Rambling Brian's Rose review is what it really is. And he starts with a quote, they're discussing it, unintentional comedy where a 19-year-old nymphomaniac coming into the care of a well-off Georgia family during the Great Depression is played more like nostalgic hijinks and sentimental lessons learned while characters come of age rather than like a heavy examination of trauma and sociological dissection. <laughs> yes, and I have to interject my own point the score is bonkers as another reviewer says bug nuts does not fit this movie at all i think it's elmer bernstein terrible the whimsical score forcing charm cheer and drama is awful there is much quotable dumb dialogue because this movie doesn't have a lot of plot but has plenty of conversations where most people seem like they're minutes away from pulling out handkerchiefs to wipe off sweaty brows over the gosh golly can you believe it's come to this geez this girl has got everybody pressed beats ultimately the issue is that this feels phony, phony in the way that we all have a relative like an aunt or uncle who tells some tales about the family history that are more about spinning a good yarn and getting listeners reacting and hooked on a smoke show family history that's largely a pipe dream instead of conveying truth. Wow. That is Brian's. (laughs) You like the Bernstein score? I loved it. Yeah, it's great. I felt like it just added to the confusion of what this movie was trying to say. It's It was just too whimsical. Oh, that's great. So, Perfect. all right, what do you got? Perfect. I've got a three-star by Matt Crosby, who, uh, much simpler review, uh, has this to say, plenty of therapy opportunities in the Hillier household. <laughs> yeah, I guess there are. I guess there are. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. 
Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 